Well, if you've been here recently, you know that we have been engaged in a study in the Gospel of John. And today we press pause on that for for one week, and we go old school. We're going to dive back deep into the pages of Israelite history, and we're going to be looking at the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, in chapter 17, a, a portion of that in particular. And there are a couple of reasons for choosing this story. One is, I like it. I like history. I like stories. I love the historical part of the Old Testament. So to me, it's interesting. But I love that the way that these stories also have have principles for us. They teach us. They're instructive. And I think this one is too. And I think this one is instructive with regard to expectations that we may bring with us into the Christian life. Think about some of the expectations that you may have with regard to how this life with God is supposed to look, smell, taste, and feel. What are some ways that you might expect this journey with God to play out? Now, there may be some people here who think, oh, come on, I don't have any expectations of this. God is God. He can do whatever he wants. But the expectations, I'm I'm pretty sure, are there, consciously or subconsciously. And the way we see that is, is most commonly is when something in life doesn't go right. When something significant doesn't go as planned and our world is rocked, when our heart gets put into a vice, the expectations leak. Perhaps it's in the form of anger, bitterness, frustration. God, I've been following you, trying to be faithful. Why? I don't deserve this kind of thing. So as we start this morning, even for just a moment, think about what expectations you may be bringing along with you with regard to this journey with God, known as the Christian life. Maybe they're powerful, maybe they're subtle, but what are some of those expectations? And then hang on to those thoughts as we kind of journey through this passage in Exodus 17, and we're going to be looking at the first seven verses before we look at the uh, start diving into the text, just the context of this. A few months prior to the events that we're going to read about, Israel was miraculously delivered from Egypt. If you remember the story, they had been enslaved there for over 400 years. And then God did this miraculous set of events that freed them from Pharaoh's grip. And it's an awesome time in Israel's history when God is clearly, invisibly leading them as a nation. It's a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And there's no mistaking that God is leading them. And think about how amazing that must have been. I'm following God and He's here, and we're going exactly where he wants us to go. And I'm guessing there were people amongst the Israelites who thought, this is awesome. 
God has freed us from slavery. He's leading us. In fact, he's leading us to the land that he promised to give us. Life is going to be wonderful. Life is going to be great. What sort of expectations do you think they might have had? So Exodus 17, starting in verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, where there there was no water for the people to drink. We're going to stop there, because there are a couple things here that are really important. First, notice that they go to this place, Rephidim, according to the command of the Lord. Very clear, unmistakably, God leads them to that place. No argument about it. And there are a couple striking things about Rephidim as a place. The first is its location. Rephidim is hardly along the shortest route between Egypt and the Promised Land. In fact, up here is a map. So you probably can't read this very well. But here, if you could see that laser pointer, it's called the Land of Goshen. That's Egypt. That's where they spent 400 years. The Lord promised to give them land, which is right over here called Kadesh Barnea on this map, and that's the promised land. Notice that Kadesh Barnea is directly east of Egypt. It's about 150 miles from where the Israelites would have been living in Egypt to the southern part of Canaan. 150 miles, probably a journey of about less than a month. The Lord, though, decides to take them on a bit of a detour, And they come way down here to Rephidim, near Mount Sinai, far south of Egypt and south of Kadesh Barnea. Not exactly the most direct route to get there. Which shows one thing, and I think this is a key part of the story, is that God wasn't in the greatest of a hurry to get them to the promised land. And do you ever notice that we, as a people, are often in far more of a hurry than God is? We like speed. We like efficiency. In Czech culture, it was said, where Czech Republic, where we lived and did missionary work, was said we live in a microwave society. We like things instantaneously. We like for things to happen quickly. Remember a couple of years ago talking to a guy who, who was, he and his family were raising support to go on the mission field to a very needy, spiritually speaking, country. And it was a long, arduous journey for them to raise the funds they needed to, to get. And I remember talking with him on the phone and his comment was, if God has called us Why isn't this process quicker? God called them to a needy place to be missionaries, to go proclaim Jesus. That's a great thing. Wouldn't you think God would do everything possible to expedite the process so so they could get there as quickly as possible? 
And with Israel, God could have theoretically taken them on a direct trip. Leave Egypt, head directly east, and get to the promised land as quickly as possible. But Israel seemingly had things that they needed to learn first about who God is and what it means to be his children before they got up there. We'll talk about that more in a bit. But I remember reading about a Chinese pastor whose name I'm sure I will butcher. Wang Mindao is how I would pronounce it. He was in Chinese prison for 20 years because of his faith. And this is what he says. One of the keys to the faith of the suffering church, God does things slowly. He works with the heart. We are too quick. We have so much to do. So much, in fact, we never really commune with God as he intended when he created Eden the perfect fellowship garden. But we are quick. We like things that way. I do. When we go on vacation, for example, I'm a be-at-the-destination-as-quickly-as-possible kind of guy. That's why we're headed on vacation, to get there. And I don't really like the process of getting from here to wherever the vacation destination is. I just kind of want to move it on. And I don't really enjoy much the spots in between because my thoughts are fixed there. And I even bring that perspective with me into the Christian life. Well, Jesus says, you'll be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. All right, Lord, so let's press fast forward and move on with this. You can do this. Let's just get there. But even last week in the message that Rob gave on John 15, he was talking about the vineyard owners and the long-term perspective that they have. Remember when they plant a new vine? How many years before they actually have fruit that they will use? It's four years. Something like eight until they actually drink of it. It's a long-term perspective. And a process of slow growth is typically the norm. And as much as I don't like it, God is often not nearly is in much of a hurry as I am. And this morning I want to give you three questions uh, throughout the, the text on which to reflect. And these are in your notes. And I encourage you at some point today or this week just to spend some time prayerfully considering these. Question number one from this section. How content are you with the slow pace of growth? Or does the desire for speed and productivity make you frustrated that growth isn't faster? What's your heart level response to the fact that God isn't necessarily pressing fast forward all the time? Is there frustration that builds up because of that? And what does that say about some of the expectations that you have? So the first thing about Rephidim that's interesting is its location. The second thing to notice about Rephidim, according to verse 1, is they get there and there's no water for the people to drink. 
Now, this region does have some water at times. In fact, here's a picture that may be near the area, if not exactly the area, where the Israelites were. And you can see that there are some trees there, meaning that there are springs of water at times. When the Israelites got there, though, there was none for the people to drink. And notice how the story continues in verse 2. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? And why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. So they get to this place where God leads them, and lo and behold, there is nothing to drink. That's a desperate situation. Remember that this is the whole nation. So you have kids, you have livestock, you have elderly And it must have looked like to some people that "Ah, God brought us here and now he's gone. Where is he? And one of the interesting things about this is that the Lord wasn't at all surprised when they got to Rephidim and found no water. It wasn't like the Lord was scratching his head going, "Uh uh-oh, didn't see that one coming. What do we do now? Seems like the Lord specifically sent them to a place where there was no water. Now, why would a good and loving God do something like that? Doesn't seem very nice. Remember where the Israelites were headed to the promised land. And when they got to the promised land, what did they encounter? They encountered a people that were well entrenched, well well fortified. People that knew the skill of fighting. They had all kinds of weapons. There were people there that the Israelites considered giants. They were going to encounter all kinds of difficulties. And before they got to the promised land, they needed to learn some things about who this God is that they serve. They needed to learn some things about trusting him and his goodness. So God sent them to a place where there were baby steps, if you will, in terms of learning to trust him. And Rephidim is one of those places. Learning to trust him in the place where there was no water. But notice how the Israelites responded to this, the reality of not having something to drink. Verse 3 says they grumbled against Moses. And they even complained, dude, why did you have the audacity to bring us out of Egypt only to have us die here? And Moses said in verse 4 that uh, it got so bad that apparently there were some people who were talking of stoning him. And one of the interesting things about this story 
And one of the puzzling things is the fact that Israel had been delivered from Egypt only a few months before and had seen some amazing miracles. Here's just a, a few of the miracles that Israel saw in the, in the months leading up to this. First, they saw God leading them very visibly, again, as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Something they could see with their eyes. That's not impressive enough. There was the whole Red Sea incident where God tells them, leads them to the place of the Red Sea. They're hemmed in by mountains and the sea, and here comes Pharaoh with his army to wipe them out. And God does this amazing miracle of parting the water, and all the Israelites walk across. But when the Egyptian army tries to do the same thing, they're decimated. That's impressive. From there, God leads them to another place. And lo and behold, there's water, but it's bitter. They can't drink it. So God instructs Moses to cut down a tree, throw it in the water, and the water becomes fresh, and they can drink it. Then they're hungry, and there's no Costco, there's no Chick-fil-A, there's nothing like that around, nothing to eat. So God sends manna and quail. It's not a bad list of miracles. Wouldn't you think, wouldn't you think that a people who saw a list of miracles like that in the span of a few months would be forever rooted in trust in God? And yet, those miracles seem to have little lasting impact in this moment when God leads them to Rephidim and there's no water. Pastor Rob is right. We're not much different than the Israelites. They did not rewind the tapes in that moment and remember what God had done in leading them to that place. They didn't remember what they fixated on when they were at Rephidim was the fact that, hey, there's no water around here. And what they forgot was that God was in their midst. The God who led them visibly, the God who parted the Red Sea, the God who gave them water previously, the God who gave them manna and quail was with them, but they did not turn to him. And it's bewildering until I realize that I'm probably not much different. And Rob is right. We so quickly forget. And that's why it's so important to remind ourselves of this, of Jesus and the cross. But it's easy to forget when we fixate on the problem, on the circumstances. Mark Buchanan is a pastor and an author. In one of his books, he writes this. He says, are you in the midst of a situation where, as you pray, you find yourself putting the problem first? If so, you're starting where you should end. 
You're rehearsing the problem, making it seem larger than it is, when what you need to do is rehearse God's greatness and bigness. Then the problem shrinks to its right, right portions. Isn't it easy, though, in the moment, in the circumstance, to focus almost exclusively on the problem? And what Mark Buchanan rightfully says is, no, even though we don't see him, remember God in our midst. And it's so easy to let our problems define us. We become known by the issues that we're going through. And Eugene Peterson says that our problems don't define us, God defines us. And part of the Christian life is remembering that when we go through those difficult times, God is in our midst. He's with us, just like he was with the Israelites in Rephidim, begging them, trust me, ask me. So question number two in your notes. If you're going through struggles right now, in significant struggles in particular, How much are you fixated on the circumstances or the problems as opposed to God and his greatness? What consumes your thoughts most of the time? Is it the the circumstances that are painful or difficult? How much do we remember that in the midst of that, God is with us? And he's greater. And then the last part of the story is found in verses 5 through 7. Verse 5 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So Moses is told by God to take his staff and he walks ahead of the people and he hits a rock and water comes out. Now I don't know what your mental image is of that, but we're talking about a lot of water. Here's how the psalmist describes it in reflecting upon this. In Psalm 105, says, reflecting upon when the Israelites were in the, in the wilderness, they asked and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock and water flowed out. It ran in the dry places like a river. Notice that last phrase. It ran in the dry places like a river. There are several places in the Old Testament that give census detail. And this census detail shows that the number of males coming out of Egypt at that time age 20 and above, was 600,000. 
So 600,000 men age 20 and above, meaning you probably have an equivalent number of women, then you have children. So very easily, we're talking about maybe 2 million people, at least, and livestock, and all of them need to drink. So the amount of water that came out of this rock, which is not the normal place you go looking for water, is massive. Massive. And they probably drank from that water, that river, for quite a long time. So even though the Israelites were in a place where there was no water at that point in time, they were still with a provider of water. They were still with God, and he was greater than their circumstances. Now, why is a story like this important for us? Part of it is, as I said, is I think most of us bring expectations of the Christian life with us. And this helps to clarify those. But it also helps us to see something else. That the Israelites were, I'm sure, profoundly grateful for that water. Satisfied thirst. Reality is that they were going to get thirsty again and they would need to keep drinking. And as followers of Jesus, we have something far better than that water. Because Jesus... Remember when he was traveling in Israel, he he was passing through Samaria one day. And he's talking with a Samaritan woman at a well. And she was there to get water from this well. And Jesus offered a different kind of water, a living water. This is what Jesus said in John 4, verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, the water that she was going to pull out of the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. See, Jesus is talking about a living water we don't get from a well or a tap or a bottle. But the water that he gives provides this inner satisfaction and this inner transformation. It flows from the heart. It's reflective of of the fact that when somebody places their faith in him, he makes them new and he gives them a new heart. See, the water that we drink is from outside in. Jesus works from the inside out. And he gives us a new heart. And he satisfies in a way that is greater than our circumstances. Jesus describes this life in terms of abundance. A a John 10.10 kind of life where Jesus makes a statement that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This word abundantly is this full life. It's a complete life. It's an overflowing life. It's an amazing invitation. But this is where some of those faulty expectations may come in. Ooh, that sounds great. Full, complete, abundant, comfortable, easy, no problems. 
but Jesus never promised that. Yes, this life of following Jesus is abundant, and it's complete, and it's joy-filled, and it's peace-filled, but that doesn't mean that there will be no trials, or no pain, or even no suffering. In fact, maybe in some ways it even gets worse because Jesus said that the world will hate you because you're my followers. But in the midst of that, we have this promise that I am with you, always and forever. Now, maybe this morning you're here and you feel like you're in a wilderness place with no water. Maybe you're in a place you feel like, I just don't sense God with me. I don't have a magic pill for you to take to make it all better. Wish I did. I can simply say that God's goodness has not diminished and his presence has not departed from you. God truly is for you. And he wants the best. His desire is to lead you to that place of knowing him more and the greatness of his love and his joy and his peace that transcends the circumstances. And hopefully one of the things that we learn from reading our Bibles is that God is not just a concept to be studied. He's a being with whom we live and interact. And one of the great promises of the Bible is that he is with us. In a few months, hard to believe, a little over four months, it's Christmas again. And one of the names ascribed in particular to Jesus at his birth is Emmanuel, God with us. And that is one of the great promises of the Bible. And it gets linked with the most common command in the Bible. You know what that is? The most common command in the Bible is, do not fear. Do not fear. And I think we see that over and over because it's such an easy default mode for us as humans. A couple quick examples from Isaiah. 41.10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you in my righteous right hand. Isaiah 43.5, do not fear, for I am with you. Notice what the promise is not. He doesn't say, hey, don't fear, because I'm going to make all your circumstances better. That's not the promise. The promise is, do not fear, because I am with you. And there is nothing greater and nothing better that I could give you than myself. And he never leaves us. When we go through a difficulty, he promises to walk through that with us. He's there. And yes, there may be times where we are led to a place where it feels like we're without water. The purpose, though, is that we would grow in our knowledge of who he is, his love, 
his goodness, his power, his provision. So the third and last question is, what do you fear in life? And what does that fear reveal about your belief in God and his goodness and his love and his power? Where do we need to be strengthened in the truth of the gospel? And how should that help us in our fears? Because the reality is, as Paul says in Romans 8, that nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I, I thank you that you are the God who is infinitely good and infinitely loving. And I thank you too that your plans for us is always, are always good. That you are the God who lavishes grace. Sometimes that grace comes in a form that we wouldn't choose and quite honestly there are times when I don't like it. But Lord, I pray that you would help us as your people to be deeply rooted in your goodness and your love. And for those here this morning who may be struggling in a similar way, I pray that your spirit would minister powerfully to them. Lead them to that comfort, that joy, and that peace that's only found in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.